0: Welcome to the Constellations Program Notes podcast. I'm Daniel Pesca, your host and guide this episode. Today we'll be exploring the works that we have coming up on our next concert, which you can catch streaming online at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, May 16th. It's our season closer, and its title is The New Normal. Now, it's fair to say that we've all experienced a lot that's new in the past 16 months or so. Our lives have shifted in some ways that are temporary and in some ways that might be lasting. And we don't quite know yet what's going to stick and what's passing. In short, it's a transition and our sense of what's normal is way off-center. That's a scary thing, to be sure, but it's also a moment full of potential. And the music we're going to hear in this concert is all about exploring potential, finding new ways forward. We have two innovative chamber groups joining us, the New York City-based Jack Quartet, who have made the creation of new music their mission as an ensemble, and the Illinois-based Berenbaugh Sextet, Arco Musicale. Today, I'll introduce the works Jack Quartet is presenting, and then we'll hear from Arco Musicale's founder, Greg Beyer, about his ensemble and the music they'll be sharing with us. Ironically, we begin our exploration of newness with the oldest work that we have ever presented on a Constellations concert. The Rodericus work Angelorum Salat was likely composed in the late 15th century. It goes to show you that the spirit of innovation, the spirit of newness, is always with us, always has been with us, in many times and in many places. <laughs>
1: all do a lot of new music, but we are super interested in in old stuff too, and I think there's a real dialogue with um, extremely ancient um, Western music and the the music being written today.
0: This is Jay Campbell, cellist of the Jack Quartet, who I caught for a quick conversation as he was in an airport terminal.
1: So Rodericus was was a composer um, kind of in, in a style called Ars Sutilior and that was a very complex musical style um, really kind of highlighted a lot of complex rhythmic processes and uh we don't actually know who this person is they their work exists only in one codex the shanti codex so um it's kind of a a mystery and like the original notation is even in contention um it's it's kind of a really radical uh, notation with many types of note heads some are half filled in some are red some are black some are empty um different flags so like a lot of a lot of uh like rational proportions and rhythmic relationships going on that create this really like um complex uh tapestry of uh of of rhythmic relationships that honestly like i can't think of someone doing anything more complex until like elliot carter
0: Elliot Carter was an American modernist whose work involved these notoriously mind-bending complexes of superimposed pulse streams. But in this Rodericus piece, we see some of those same techniques being used, but in a much different language. Our violinist Chris Otto
1: took this piece, which is originally a two-line song, uh, which you hear in the the first violin and the viola line. Um, He took the song and basically highlighted the rhythmic underpinning of each line, because when you just hear it as this melismatic song, you don't actually hear the uh, you don't hear the pulse underneath. It sounds like it's very free and and lyrical, but you don't actually hear um, just how um, complex the real uh, rhythmic relationships are. So he adds pizzicatos and the second violin and the cello um, to basically reveal the rhythmic structure underneath.
0: As a listener. I love the moment when the second violin and cello enter with their pizzicatos. Like Jay says, the original song, Sounds So Free, has this wonderfully fluid motion, especially as played by Jack. But then suddenly this pulse is there and it's like you can hear the scaffolding behind it. To hear that scaffolding, you'll have to join us Sunday. From Rodericus, our program today jumps ahead about 500 years, all the way to the United States in the 1930s, to the remarkable String Quartet of Ruth Crawford Seeger. Born in 1901, Ruth Crawford was a pioneering figure of American ultramodernism. In 1930, she became the first female composer to win a Guggenheim Fellowship, and it was during her time in Berlin on Fellowship that she began writing her String Quartet, which explored many of the cutting edge techniques of its time. The piece is in four very concise movements that altogether are about 10 minutes in length. Throughout, there is a sense of a terse drama unfolding, as well as a thrilling sense of the exploration of new textures and sounds from the string quartet. Sounds and textures that would have ramifications for the development of quartet writing for generations afterwards. Particularly influential is the quartet's third movement, its slow movement. Jay Campbell, again.
1: The slow movement that's like kind of a composite melody that's shared in like swells. Um, like, I don't think you see music like that for a very long time like maybe until the 60s
0: This movement put Crawford on the map, becoming her best-known work. Fellow American innovator Henry Cowell chose it for inclusion on the first album of his New Music Society recording series. And Cowell wrote to his mentor, Charles Ives, that the movement was perhaps the best theme for quartet ever written in this country. A year after completing this quartet, Ruth Crawford married the eminent American musicologist Charles Seeger, who had been her composition teacher. Charles Seeger's son was Pete Seeger, the folk singer. The Seeger family settled in D.C. in 1936, and Ruth Crawford Seeger wound up working at the Library of Congress as a specialist in folk music, working closely with John and Alan Lomax. Her career, in short, moved away from the exploration of musical ultramodernism, and towards the preservation of traditional music. Her quartet thus stands as perhaps the most lasting tribute to her unique voice. This transparent, delicate soundscape, like light glimmering over the horizon at dawn, is the beginning of the alluring string quartet, Chambers, by Marcos Balter. As in the slow movement of Ruth Crawford's quartet, this opening of Balter's work foregrounds the texture and color of the music so that those elements are of equal importance to more traditional qualities of music, such as melody and harmony. Such music demands a different kind of listening. I find Balter's title, Chambers, richly evocative. These are like different sonic environments or spaces that we, the listeners, are guided through. Each one of the three movements of this piece is distinct and meticulously made and gorgeously played by Jack. Compared to the first movement, the second movement, which we're hearing now, is tenser, pulsing, skittish, like a shadowy scherzo. It is very different from what we heard in the first movement, but also very much the same voice. Born in Brazil in 1974, Balter has become an important figure in contemporary American music, renowned for a style that incorporates experimental techniques into a language that is hypnotic and compelling. Balter composed Chambers in 2011, making it the most recent work on Jack Quartet's program for us. But the quality of newness is not limited by timeline. We find new sounds here, to be sure, but we also find new sounds in Rodericus and in Crawford Seeger. As Jay puts it,
1: music, is not the single
0: um,
1: like one directional thing that we sometimes think it is, that it's getting increasingly complex and started very basic. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's a lot messier than that. And um, we've had a lot of different ways of valuing different types of music um, over over the years and in different eras uh, of history, like different types of things pleased people in different ways. And some are more popular, and some are less popular, and it just changes. And I don't think it's like
0: we're getting more and more and more advanced. The new, the unfamiliar, that which fascinates or thrills. We can find this in art of all eras and from all places. This is the sound of the berimbau, the beautiful instrument played by the six members of Arco Musicale. As they perform, always from memory, Arco Musical seems to dance to the music. Watching them play is a visceral, joyful experience. I sat down for a chat with the founder and artistic director, Greg Beyer, and he was generous enough to give an interview rich in information about the instrument, its origins, the ensemble he runs, and the music they will be playing for us Sunday, a brand new piece by Chicago composer, Matt Eulery. First of all, what is a Berenbao?
2: So the Berenbao is one member of a really large family of Sub-Saharan African musical bows. A musical bow is exactly that. It's akin to a hunting bow. It's a, a staff with a stretched um, string, you know, that's, that, that extends to both extremities. And then there's usually some sort of resonating body that, that, that creates the, you know, the sound box of the instrument. There are three, There are three basic kinds of musical bows. There are ground bows, there are mouth bows, and then there are gourd-resonated bows. And then with a gourd-resonated Bow, fam- you know, some sort of subcategory of this larger family of instruments. Um, there are there are two two subcategories of the, of the of the of the gourd resonated bow. There's what's called a braced bow and an unbraced bow. The bow belongs to the braced bow family, and in the braced bow family, you have a you have a a kind of a cord um, that runs through the, the gourd and around both the staff and the wire, and it divides the wire into two. Uh, smaller segments, right? And so where you put the gourd up and down the length of the wire will create different musical results as a a result of the mathematical relationship between those two lengths, right? So we're talking about, ultimately we're talking about really simple whole, whole number ratios that create musical intervals. It's it's a it's been fun for us because it's a it's like just intonation it's like Pythagorean tuning we, we we don't refer to our major third instrument as a major third instrument we talk we call it the five to four <laughs> <laughs> nice and, yeah, you know great. we call we call the perfect fourth instrument the four to three uh huh you know we call uh-huh. the major second instrument the nine to eight you know it gets it gets it gets you know, it sort of compounds on itself.
0: Ask Greg how he came to fall in love with the instrument.
2: When I went to New York City and was getting a master's degree in, in percussion at the Manhattan School of Music, I was also playing a lot of jazz. And, and one day I was down at, the, at this place called Drummer's World. It was on uh, Little Brazil Avenue, like 46th between Broadway and 6th. And uh, it was a famous place, like a mecca for drummers and percussionists from all over the world to come and sell stuff or buy stuff or meet and, you know, it was it was a it was a really awesome institution, and I was there one day just minding my own business, picking up drumsticks and you know whatever for my for my drums, and uh, and all of a sudden I heard this amazing sound coming from the back of the shop, and I and I went back and took a look, and, and there was a gentleman back there, and he was just wailing on a, on a bareback, playing it with, a, with really with a real virtuosic flair, and you know I, I was fascinated, and I quietly watched him play and was observing, and then when he stopped playing, I picked up a conversation with him and told him how much I enjoyed what he was doing, and, and he said, listen, if, if there's one recording that you should, if you really want to learn about this instrument, go get this recording, and it'll really turn you on to the Birnbaum. And he mentioned Nana Vasconcelos' album called Saudades. So this was in the late 90s, and I, I made a beeline from Drummer's World to the Tower Records that was like less than two blocks away at the time. And I found the record, and I got on the subway, and I went back up to the, the Bronx, and I, I, put it, I put the thing on my, on my player, and um, I, I was just, that was it for me. It was, it was, it was, it was you were it, smitten. oh, yeah, it was, Exactly.
0: From here, Greg takes a deep dive into the berimbau. He finds a teacher in New York. He commissions many, many composers to write for the instrument and for him, and he winds up writing his doctoral dissertation about it, not just on how to play the berimbau, but on its history, about its deep roots in African musical traditions. I ask him about these origins of the instrument and how it is traditionally played.
2: The common practice in Africa is that the instrument is a solo instrument. It's an instrument that's played either in a a pastoral setting, um, as a way of sort of passing the time while you're herding cattle. Um, It's an instrument that has a certain social context um, in in urban environments, um, but is still usually played as an individual instrument or in an ensemble, but in an ensemble where that is the only musical bow that's being played.
0: These instruments were brought to Brazil through the slave trade, And in Brazil, the Barambau developed a particular association with the martial arts practice known as capoeira. It is largely through the practice and dissemination of capoeira around the globe that the Barambau has become more widely heard and recognized. Greg refers me to the work of historian Matias Asunso.
2: The history of Capoeira was difficult for him to research because the annals of the history of Capoeira aren't found in the light in libraries. They're they're mostly found in like police records because Capoeira was outlawed, right? It was considered a dangerous, you know, African practice, and people were people were brutalized and thrown in jail, you know, in, in very much the same way that like post post abolition you know, you still have a kind of a Jim Crow environment where people could be thrown in jail at the drop of a hat. Um, and so and so it was with the Capoodistas that the Easts were frequently, you know, they were jailed for the least offences and 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 the Binabao became part of the Capoeira, you know, cosmology, so to speak. And, it, it, you know, they really have a synergistic relationship. If, if the Bidimbao hadn't found capoeira and the capoeira hadn't found the Binabao, I think neither one would still really exist today. But, but capoeira helped disguise the practice of capoeira and its violence because it could be musicalized and turned into, you know, it could be, it could be disguised more easily as a dance, something harmless.
0: On a Fulbright in Brazil, Greg himself learned more about capoeira, and I wonder if the experience of learning this practice now influences the dance-like way the musicians of Arco Musical move, sometimes as though challenging each other in a game of friendly rivalry. Arco Musical is playing for us a large brand new work by Matt Eulery. And I asked Greg to introduce the composer to us. Greg is effusive, to put it mildly.
2: Matt is a genius. He's a, he's a bass player, by trade, bass player and a tuba player, tubist. Um and he's you know, he lives in the jazz world, but he is a composer of some really deep rich, meaningful, intense, melodic, emotional, musical landscape, landscapes. And we just couldn't be more thrilled I and mean, we are so honored and thrilled to, pre- to have this piece in our repertoire and to be able to present it to all of you in a couple of couple of weeks here or in a week and a half, um, because the piece is just this tapestry of of depth that we simply haven't experienced before as an ensemble. It's twenty, and, and we and we have some good pieces in our repertoire, but this piece is just fantastic. We're really honored that he is actually playing with us. So oh, <laughs> so not only do we have the six strings of our bows, but we have the four strings of. His, his acoustic bass that kind of really ground us and, and give us this extra richness of timbre and depth, you know, an entire extra octave and a half of, of musical information to, to deal with and to rich in the harmonic, harmonic language. What's really awesome about his musical language is that his harmonic understanding is just oh, it's just exquisite you know and he is deeply inspired by um eastern european uh musical forms and musical styles and he studied the music of bartok for example and has and he and he knows something about like the balkan you know wedding dance music and that and has played some of that stuff and he's he's just he's just He's so talented and so sensitive, and he absorbs so much musical information.
0: Matt heard Greg and Arco Musical play at a concert in Chicago, and a collaboration was born. Matt took his time to get to know the instrument and really absorb all the implications of the project. It sounds like one particular experience led to everything clicking for him
2: in the throes of thinking about our, our music, he, he got a gig um, playing at a jazz festival in, in Portugal. And so he was like, hmm, Portugal, Brazil, Birnbaum, Greg, America, Portugal, colonize, the colonizers, right? Like Brazil, right? Like he started like thinking about all this stuff. And then, and out of that, those, the, that sort of primordial soup of, of his creative thinking came this notion of, what it means for an instrument to travel from Africa to Brazil, what it means for it to be colonized, what it means for it, for it to be like, you know, away from its homes, what it means to travel to America, what it means to like, you know, what, what's going on with this, with this musical instrument and everything that it signifies and, you know, all of the cultural richness that it, that it represents. And, you know, in its travels, it's picking up, you know, people, right like it, it 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 gave someone like Nana Vasconcelos a serious wind underneath, underneath his creative wings it brought this kind of creative power to his musical voice with with capoeira it sustained that entire martial art practice and you know grew this community you know it it found Greg in New York City and this identity kind of exploded out of this thing like what is, what is the Bin and it? What is it really doing to all of us? What does it represent? And so I feel like the dance that I have with the Bin and bow, is one of joy and humility and respect. And it's not about me or any one of us playing, it's about us. And it's about what happens when we play this music together and and uh, and the kind of joy that we feel by virtue of, of playing together. Because the way that Arco Musica plays, it's like we're sort of like a handbell choir, right? and every one of us has, we're responsible for X number of pitches, but we can't play melodies on our own, not to the extent that the ensemble can, right? So when the ensemble plays together, we all need each other to like, make sure that that melody comes to life. And we all need each other to make sure that those harmonies line up. And we all need each other to make sure that the, dan- that the dance is happening. And, uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a dance of community.
1: Thank you so much, Daniel, Greg, and Jay for sharing your expertise with us. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you can join us at www.constellationsmusic.org on Sunday, May 16th at 3 p.m. Eastern for our final virtual concert, A New Normal. And be sure to stay after the concert for our exclusive Zoom reception with the artists hosted by Daniel, If you can't make it on Sunday afternoon, you can always catch an on-demand replay of the performance on our website for 72 hours after showtime. Thanks again and see you soon!